Hi, everybody. Welcome to the program Breaking News tonight. This is Ashley Banfield. I know this is a crime show. It is a show about true crime. But I am going to bring you that show in a moment. I promise you. I know you've had a lot of war news all day long. But the world is kind of feeling like it's falling apart right now given what happened at that innocent music festival in Israel on Saturday, and then the blistering retaliation for it. Everybody's just waiting for the next shoe to drop. I just want to get you up to speed really quickly on the latest on that, and then I promise you I'm going to return you to the true crime show, but bear with me for just a moment. There is an extraordinary amount of rubble and smoke in the Gaza Strip right now. It's a place I know actually quite well because I spent a lot of time there as a war correspondent, was actually kind of kidnapped by Hamas. It's a weird story, another day. Um, Israel ordered a complete siege of that region today. The country is launching attacks against what it calls Palestinian military sites in Gaza. It's that little tiny strip, looks like a band-aid on the left-hand side, bottom of the country, right? It has long been known that Hamas stores its military arsenals among civilian buildings like apartments and mosques, schools, hospitals, So all those kinds of buildings are getting hit. Israel says it gives last-minute warnings to the people inside those buildings to get out before the bombs fall. Then the bombs fall. Palestinians argue that point. But in addition to bombing the sites, Israel's now going to squeeze the hell out of Gaza. Squeeze it. Shut her down. Squeeze off all food, all water, all fuel, all supplies. Nothing is going to get into that Band-Aid. Nothing. That little Band-Aid has 2 million people in it. It's a big, big deal. Because according to the UN, about 80% of folks in the Gaza Strip already live below the poverty line. They rely on humanitarian assistance. So now imagine imagine them with nothing. Uh, It is controlled by Hamas. That is a Palestinian Islamist group officially considered a terrorist organization by the United States. And all of this is because of what happened on Saturday. Israelis are calling Saturday their September 11th. Think about that for a minute. It is there September 11th. Hamas decided to launch a surprise attack on Israel, firing dozens and dozens of deadly rockets, sending hundreds and hundreds of terrorists flooding into southern Israel to unleash holy hell. And holy hell is exactly what they unleashed, starting with the music festival. Music festival. They gunned down over 100 Israelis there. Kids, families, you know, civilians. And they abducted dozens and dozens of hostages, kids, families, teen girls who look like they're going to Taylor Swift, that kind of stuff. They abducted them. They took them hostage. This was the most sophisticated operation that they have ever conducted. And it is the most ferocious cross-border attack since the 1940s. I'm wondering how many of you watching were even born back then. According to Israel media, uh, at least 900 Israelis have been killed, mostly civilians. There were apparently only about 70 of them that were actually soldiers. 70 dead in this war. The rest of them are civilians. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, the Israeli military retaliation for that whole Saturday business, that's killed upwards of 680 people in Gaza. And very much like the music festival, that includes dozens and dozens of women and children. At least 11 Americans were killed in that Hamas attack. About 2,000 people have been injured on both sides. As far as the hostages go, the numbers are a little bit fuzzy, but it is thought right now that they are in the dozens, including Israeli soldiers, but also teenage girls 
little kids, innocent families, many of them captured during that supernova music festival. Look at this picture. Notice her pants, where all that blood is. That's a pretty key piece of evidence for rape. One of the festival goers kidnapped was a German-Israeli citizen named Shani Luke, seen here dancing and smiling with her friends. And just hours later, hours after that video, this was the video, I can't even show it to you, because it was posted showing her nude and terribly broken, her body broken up into bits, paraded through the streets uh, in a truck by those Hamas soldiers, and you can see the passers-by spitting on her. You can argue all you want about the politics between Israel and Palestinians. You can argue that. I get it. But you cannot argue the facts behind this BS warfare. Warfare. Barbaric pictures of innocent people. It's terrorism. We had it on 9-11. Nobody argued it, did we? You can argue American foreign policy until you're blue in the face. Fine, go for it. You cannot argue that taking down buildings with moms and dads going to work is warfare. It is cowardly. It's terror. It's just past 5 a.m. right now in Israel, and we're going to watch the situation very, very closely. Going to bring you the breaking news updates as they happen, as I said off the top, the next shoe to drop. But I'm going to switch gears right now, and I'm going to bring you my true crime show, because I promised you that, and it is what I do every night at 10. So I'm going to start in Vermont because Vermont is beautiful. It is, it's peaceful. It's lovely. I go there all the time during the winter. But somewhere out in Vermont or maybe beyond, there is a monster on the loose. Another dead woman was left alone on a hiking trail. It's barely been two months since Rachel Morin was found dead on a hiking trail in Maryland. Barely two months. And now there's another manhunt. This one's Castleton, Vermont. It's about two hours south of Burlington if you're looking on a map. Look how pretty. Look how beautiful that walk in the fall leaves would have been for that woman. Broad daylight, 4 p.m., out on a beautiful trail. It's called the Delaware and Hudson Trail. Very, very popular, just like the one Rachel Morin was on. Very, very popular, the Ma and Pa Trail. Broad daylight for Rachel Morin, too. There's a beast on the loose in the Rachel Morin story, too. Are they the same? I don't know. I don't think so. But look at that map that you have on your screen right now. See how close it is to the Vermont State uh, University Castleton campus? It's right there. This happened on Thursday. 30 minutes after uh, she was shot in the head, a hiker happened upon her body. Her name was Honoré Fleming, 77 years old. She is a retired dean of the university. She's the wife of a Pulitzer Prize-winning author named Ron Powers, beloved on campus. He's still at large, whoever did this. Whoever shot her dead, shot her in the head, dead, still out there, monster on the loose, attacking in the broad daylight, hiker. Uh, police canvassed. All they can say is this. At least we have a description on this one, and it is stark. You ready? Take a note. White male, late 20s, Short red hair. That's different. Short red hair. 5'10". Last seen wearing a dark t-shirt, carrying a black backpack. Here's the press conference they gave today where they basically said they are just, they're just frustrated. What's frustrating for police and the investigators and, you know, everybody involved in this is that we don't have a suspect. We don't have a motive. We can't really, you know, develop any type of... Uh, systematic way of doing this.
No, I wouldn't say it's random and I wouldn't say it's targeted because we just don't have enough evidence to indicate if it is. I want to bring in News Nation's national correspondent, Alex Capriello. He's live from that trail uh, where Honoré Fleming was found. Alex, the campus is so close by, I can only imagine that they are in a state of panic. Like, Take me to where you are um, at the trailhead and tell me what the situation is right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ashley. This is the trailhead. Only about 200 feet that way is the dorms where students actually sleep every single night. Just goes to show how close this trail and, frankly, how beloved it is. It travels uh, for several miles that way. And, in fact, students, faculty, just people who live here in Castleton use it each and every day. They feel comfortable. They feel safe on this space. Uh, and right now, that sort of sense of peace is really taken away from them, not just because this horrific, violent crime happened here, but because the guy who is likely responsible for it is still just out there. I think it's really shocking to everyone here in this community. Were they supposed to shelter in place? Uh, and, and if so, for how long? Yeah, there really was a, a lockdown here at this campus over the weekend. It co coincided with... Um, their fall break. So that was really nice because a lot of students ended up going home anyway. But it all happened and everyone really just sort of had to deal with this reality of this violent act happening so close. And in fact, I think a lot of people to this day are still shook up by it. I had a chance to speak to both a senior who goes to college here, uh, as well as the dean of students, the senior telling me that really things just haven't return to that normalcy that they would hope for after this uh, event occurred. And then from the dean of students perspective, it was all about really ramping up law enforcement and security here to make both the students and the parents feel comfortable. I think we have a portion of both of those interviews if we want to take a listen now. Does it make you nervous that this guy hasn't even been found yet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Every day. I mean, I, I, I work here, I study here, I, I train here. So every everything I want to do is here. So. It's very scary knowing that a killer might be around us. It's, it's scary, and it's important, I think, because we don't know who this is, that we are taking those safety uh, precautions, and we're taking care of ourselves and one another, and really reaching out when we are feeling unsafe, calling public safety, calling the police, making sure that we're contacting someone and letting them know. I will say this, Ashley, that the amount of police presence all around this campus, all around this town has actually been really incredible. You can't really drive for more than a minute without seeing several Vermont State Police troopers just driving by, keeping their eyes open. Right. And in fact, that's really all they can do at this point. They don't have a name of a suspect. All they have is this description that is being blasted out to everyone here. Everyone's really on the lookout for a white male with red head, red hair, five foot ten, carrying a black backpack. That's all that they really have at this point. Yeah, that's a lot more than we had with Rachel Morin for quite some time until we saw, you know, the ring doorbell cam on the other coast after an assault where the DNA matched. And they had, you know, sort of the backside of what looked like a Hispanic male shirtless. But here it is now. I'm going to repeat it. White male, late 20s, short red hair, about five foot ten. Last seen wearing dark T-shirt, carrying black backpack. I asked about the concern, Alex, for the, the campus nearby. You know, this is breaking news when there's a manhunt and there's a monster murderer on the loose. Mm -hmm. But are they also looking at the possibilities that maybe the murderer is a student, given the proximity? 
I think that would be a very uh, simple theory for police to pursue. I'm sure that they are looking at that, among others. I mean, a lot of gossip and rumors are going around town right now, and that's just what happens when the police don't give you more information or they don't give you a name. People are left to start looking suspiciously at their friends and family that's around town. And so, yes, we have heard theories that it could be a student, perhaps a former student, someone who may have felt disgruntled at this former academic here in their space. But really, I asked the police about that point blank today. I said, hey, do we have a motive? And they just really said, no, we don't have a motive. We don't know who this person is. We can't say if it's random. We can't say if it's targeted because we just don't know. I was a little curious about how they know about the red hair and the backpack. Like who saw a suspect where and doing what? That's such a remote area. And this woman was out on the hiking trail at 4 p.m., by herself. So who's who gave the description? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is a remote area. Yes, this is Vermont, and it's all very remote. It's a very remote state. But at the same time, this is such a highly used hike and bike trail. The campus is here. And so coming at a time on a beautiful uh, autumn day on a Thursday, there's probably a ton of people that were out walking on this trail. And so, and that's the reason why we saw this change of description all of a sudden, where it began as dark hair, but then it became red hair. And the police tried to clear that up a little bit, too, because they've received more than 200 tips over these past few days. And what they were basically saying to me was that, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to actually jog that memory. When you ask a witness something, hey, what did that person look like when you saw it? Your mind gets a little fuzzy. It starts playing tricks on you. And perhaps someone thought that it was dark hair when really it was red hair. And so that was the reason why we saw that description change. But at the same time, I don't think that they're having that much trouble having people call in because everyone is greatly concerned about this. Everyone wants a conclusion. And probably very likely a lot of people were out here on this hike and bike trail on Thursday at 4 to 4.30 p.m. And so I think they just want as many people as possible to come forward with those tips. Even if it might change their description a little bit, that's okay. Just tell us what you know because it might lead us somewhere. Uh, All I can say is that with the description of the red hair, when they started with dark hair, I thought, oh, my God, is it possible this is Rachel Marin's killer? Because they have said Rachel's Marin killer is Mm. he's going to do it again. But then they switched it to red hair. Are they absolutely of the conviction that these two murders are not connected because they sure smell the same? Yeah, I agree with you. A lot of similarities there. At this point, they have not made that connection. I think that is something that is worth pressing. I think that is something that is worthy of us pointing out those similarities and asking, hey, is there any possibility that there is a connection here or that this could be the same suspect? But at this point, police aren't going that far. They just want a little bit more, any sort of hard lead to go on before they can even make a connection like that. Alex Capriello, great job. I appreciate you um, being out there at 10 o'clock at night, Eastern, at the trailhead, where you know clearly it is, is not a safe place for people to go. And I think that's a warning we should be telling people right now. Um, with Rachel Morin's killer out there still, and now with this Vermont killer, um, you know, head on a swivel. Thank you for that, Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks. Alex Capriello doing the work for us um, out there. So I want to bring in Phil Waters now. He's a retired homicide detective from the Houston Police Department. He's investigated more than a 400 homicides. So I wonder what sticks out to you. I gave you the fact pattern. I gave you the similarities and the differences between Rachel Morin and this one. You know, one of them is 6 o'clock in the evening in the summer. It's bright and sunny and lovely where Rachel Morin was killed. This woman is out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, still bright and sunny with the fall leaves. 
Does anything else stick out about this, Phil? Well, thank you for having me back, Ashley. Uh, the first thing I want to tell you is thank you for the first part of your show here and exposing the atrocities that are going on in Israel. So our prayers are Horrendous. Horrendous. Uh, Abs- and you know what, Phil? I said it was a crime show, right? I started the show. I said this is wow. a crime show, but I'm going to start with war. But the truth is, that is crime. That is war crime. Terrorism yeah, yeah. taking teenage girls who are dressed for a freaking Taylor Swift concert and throwing them into these, you know, mass kidnap zones um, and families and kids. You know, that's just crime. So it, oh, it fit exactly. at the top of this show. Um, but I didn't want to belabor the, the story that, you know, most cable news outlets are doing. Anyway, I digress. Go ahead. Oh, no. At, at its most depraved. You know, you're exactly right. Um, but let's let's talk about this case. I, I tell you, I, in, in reading what I've read and, and listened to what the chief said, gosh, I'm hopeful that, <clears throat> excuse me, I am hopeful that, <laughs> that the chief is doing something. Um, I, I was kind of amazed that, you know, we don't know where, we don't have anything we can do kind of attitude. And uh, we don't know if it's targeted. We don't know if it's random. Uh, there's a whole lot we don't know. We really don't know which direction. Well, I, Look, this is a case. It's, it's obviously a big whodunit. There's, you've got to hit the ground running with this thing. I would think they're out looking for possible video evidence somewhere. We're trying to get a timeline on when did she. Now, my understanding is she's been retired for several years. This was one of her favorite hiking trails. And so she would presumably have to leave wherever she was to get to that trail go in at the head of that trail, <clears throat> and then short time later, I'm, per- I'm curious as to the time frame of the time she enters the trail to the time these shots are heard and the witness discovers her body. So there's a lot of right, questions. About, I- hey, Phil, how about whoever it is that gave this redhead description of the, of the suspect? Right. That person right. dodged literally a bullet because they had to have seen that person up close enough to be within a range of being shot as well as a witness. But somehow they were able to say, the guy that passed me, uh, I'm guessing, it was Redhead. I, I have one thing I need to ask you about. There's something very unique about this case that is not the same as Rachel Morin's case and is not the same as other cases. I know that in your line of work, you guys go sort of, you know, you, you move out with the concentric circles. You start at those closest to her, boyfriend, husband, is there acrimony, all that stuff. There is something unusual. Um, Ms. Fleming's uh, husband, his name is, her name is, his name is Ron Powers, okay? He wrote a book about mental illness, and he was very, very um, vulnerable and forthcoming about his two sons and said they both suffered from schizophrenia. One took his own life, the other one is still alive. As a homicide detective, is that a game changer? Does that change the equation on how you investigate? It doesn't change it. It becomes part of it. Uh, he, the the husband, needs to be interviewed, and that son needs to be interviewed. Now, I understand that there's been some post made by the husband directly related to this son, kind of explaining that he was not involved. Um, I find that a little odd. I, this is one of these cases where they've got to reach the people they need to talk to with a, with a sense of urgency. So the first thing I, mean, I would have done, this is my scene. We need to, as you've already stated, 
find out who the closest people are to her, and those are the first people we need to go to because perhaps they can at least put the timeline together for why she's even on that trail at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so, and then there's no telling what kind of information we're going to garner from those interviews. And I think it's critically important that that son is interviewed. There's just, there's a lot of uh, strangeness around a the post. There, a lot of strangeness yeah. around there, the post. There's post. a lot to unpack and a lot to figure out. Um, Phil, thank you. I want to make sure, because we've got breaking news, because this person's still out there, it is a manhunt. I want to let people know that if you have any information, anything at all, you can call the Vermont State Police at 802-773-9101. It uh, should be on your screen. I don't know if we have that. Yeah, there you go. Just take a quick photograph of your TV screen right now. Call the Vermont State Police, 802-773-9101. It takes a village, folks, to, um, to catch a bad guy in a manhunt, and oftentimes you are the difference. Thank you, Phil Waters. Appreciate it so much. Coming up. Thank it you. turns out that, thanks, Phil. Uh, okay, so it turns out that uh, he wasn't happy until he came clean about all the women that he murdered in his killing spree. That right there is the happy face serial killer. And now he's added one more victim to his total count. He said all along that he left her by the roadside. So why are the police just now making it official three decades after he said he killed her? Wait till you hear how and why he says he killed her next. So this is weird. I didn't think this was going to happen. I don't think anybody did, actually. But the happy face serial killer, guy from the 90s, uh, he's in prison. Uh, the happy face serial killer and the Long Island suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer. They are pen pals. Think about it. Doesn't make sense, does it? No, it does not. The guy who absolutely is a serial killer is pen pals with the guy who is defending the accusations that he is the Gilgo Beach Long Island serial killer. I'm going to explain that in just a bit. But first, you need to know about the happy face killer, because he made big news on his own today. And then this whole like business about him being a pen pal came out. So the, the news that was made was that uh, they have added another body count and charged him with another murder, like three decades after it happened. And I get it. Cold cases. OK, we solved it. But the weirdest part of all of this is that he actually had said it. He led them to the body 29 years ago. So why are we only adding to the body count now? He's serving seven life terms, so I'm not worried about it. Like, I'm not worried about the, oh, what's going to happen? Are they going to commit? Who cares? He's not getting out. But if you don't remember the happy face killer, the deal with this fella is that he was a long-haul trucker, and it was in the 90s. He killed at least eight women, right? Across six states, California, Nebraska, Wyoming, Oregon, Washington, and Florida. He used to send confession letters taunting the police, and he would sign them with a happy face, because he's that kind of guy. That's why he got the name, the happy face killer. Uh, landscapers actually found the last body on Interstate 10 in Florida, September of 1994, like 29 years ago. They didn't identify the remains. They weren't able to identify the remains with what they had and the science back then. Even though he said, 
I tossed out my victim on the interstate and told him where to go. But then, as you guys have all heard because of uh, the Idaho quadruple murders, Othram came along, that Texas uh, genealogy DNA testing facility. They came along and they did testing. They did genealogy testing and it led them to the happy face killer. So they threw the charge on him. And then it turns out they do an interview with him in prison. Uh, oh, by the way, he admitted to like pressing his fist into her neck and zip tying her throat because she was too noisy in the vehicle. He, he picked her up at a truck stop and, and she was hitchhiking and he, 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 she was screaming at some point, doesn't say why. And then that's how he killed her because he said she was screaming baloney sick. Then he says, I used to write serial killers. Uh, I would say, well, you know, when somebody all of a sudden breaks in a case, I would send a letter as the happy face killer. I would send a letter to a suspected serial killer and I would tell them to confess. And I did that to Rex Heuerman, the Long Island suspected Gilgo Beach guy. And Rex wrote back. Rex Heuerman wrote back to the happy face killer. The request from the happy face killer was to come clean, be honest, and, you know, clear conscious. And the answer from Rex Heuerman was, I'll take it under advisement. <laughs> I want to bring in Mike King. He's a retired homicide detective with 28 years law enforcement experience, host of the popular podcast Profiling Evil. I can see it in your face. I can see it in your face. The fact that they're pen pals, you can't make this stuff up. But I want you to tell me a little bit about Suzanne Chellenberg. Uh, it's not going to make a difference, Mike, to his sentence. How much of a difference does it make when a guy like you goes to a family that's been waiting for 30 years for justice and says, we have a solution. We know that we know who it is. What does it mean to them? Yeah, that, that's really the purpose in pursuing this and figuring out who this woman is, isn't it, Ashley, that you can go to the family and finally bring not, not closure. I don't know that these things bring closure, but it certainly brings answers. It might enable a family to bury a loved one properly. But uh, this this is huge, and it's kind of a victory lap for law enforcement that finally we've been able to figure this out and sends a message that we don't give up. And thankfully, we got guys like Middleman who put Othram together and, and make this available. Yeah, I'm going to do a special on Othram because, you know, it's just popping up all the time now. And I want to do a deep dive and find out, okay, tell me everything about what you do down there in that uh, that building in Texas. So stay tuned for that. Question for you, though, Mike. I've covered cases before that have resulted in conviction where they did not find the dead body. They didn't actually find the body, but they knew the guy killed her. What happens if you find a body you can't give an identity, and the guy has led you to it. Why couldn't they just convict him of it anyway 29 years ago? You know, we had this question a lot at the attorney general's office when I was there. And, of course, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm on the investigative side. But we, we came up with the realities that in this particular case, I think, is the perfect example. They've got this predator in jail. He's staying in jail. He's never going to get out. Doing a capital murder case or at least a homicide case is incredibly expensive. And so to take some time and realize that you're not losing ground, you might gain more information, and you might be able to actually put a case together. But worst case is you're able to here they don't know who the family is until now you you're not you're not telling a family we're not going to do anything you're you're holding on yeah. until you can hold out and that's really what it's about i think is is finances and 
they're not losing anything because this guy's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere, and this won't make a heap of difference to him, but it will to them, like you said. Mike King, thank you. Love it. And I love the work you do. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thanks, Ashley. Great to be with you. We'll see you again soon, that is for sure. Still to come, they are some of the most vicious cold-blooded serial killers in history. But their names don't end in Gacy, Dahmer, or Bundy. So why are they virtually unknown if their crimes are so much worse than these guys? After the break, we are naming names, we are showing faces, with someone who makes it her business to know every single detail that would keep the rest of us up at night. Part three of the Serial Killer Files next. They are undoubtedly the names in our nightmares. Gacy, Dahmer, BTK, and the like, right? They are like the murderer's row, the worst of the worst. But are they? Are they really the worst of the worst? Um, There are serial killers that would send a shudder up the spines of those three monsters. So why are some of them infamous? And why are some of them anonymous? It's actually a really good question for Catherine Ramsland. Dr. Ramsland is here for part three of our special series. This is her line of work. She's a forensic psychologist and author of the book Confessions of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. Oh, Dr. Ramsland, it's so good to have you back. Um, We're on part three already, uh, and I have enjoyed every one of these. And yes, you do give me nightmares with your incredible information. (laughs) Why is it, though? Well, just the sweeping comment off the top before we dig into the three you've got. Why do the ones that you're about to tell me about not catapult into the headlines far beyond these other three guys and all the others that we know? Typically, it's about what's happening culturally. Some of them stand out and become almost like archetypes that we we remember. They are memorable, whereas others, why they might be in the news for a little while, they tend to fade away. So it has a lot to do with what they've done, the kind of victims they chose, and um, how they present themselves. Okay, tell me about Robert Burdella. I'm a crime reporter. I did not know his name, but apparently he was the Kansas City butcher. What do I need to know about him? He would bring men into his home, bind them, knock them out, bind them, and then torture them in all different ways, keeping a ledger of everything he did to them. He might inject something into their eyes, for example, burn them, electrocute them, um, take pictures of them, tell them what he's doing to them, just so he could see their reactions, and he would keep meticulous notes. And as each one weakened, he would kill him, dismember him, and sometimes just put the parts out on the garbage. Oh, my Lord. Wesley Allen Dodd. Again, a name I didn't know. Wesley Allen Dodd was actually very articulate about the fantasies he had of torturing children, little boys. And finally, he acted on those fantasies. He went to a park. He found two brothers. Um, He bound them together at the wrists while he sexually assaulted them and then killed them. And then later, he found a four-year-old boy 
brought him home, kept him there as a captive, um, assaulting him, torturing him for days, and then kept very detailed notes on everything he had done and what he wanted to do. And, and I think in that case, he hung up the body in his apartment and then wanted to go out for more, but he was caught before he could. It's, it's unfathomable that someone would enjoy torturing a four-year-old. I mean, a nine-year-old, ten-year-old, all of it, but a four-year-old. What are they getting out of that? Um, the next one surprises me. It's a lady, Teresa Knorr. Yeah, I wouldn't call her a lady. <laughs> she was a mm. bad mother. Um, she had six kids. She would torment all of them. She would throw knives at them. She'd threaten them. She'd force feed them and starve them. Um, she made them uh, hold each other down while she beat them with a special paddle. And then she turned her uh, real nastiness on her two older daughters. Uh, one of them she handcuffed to a kitchen table for two years, starving her, beating her, um, and, and threatening her. And at one point, uh, one of the kids was holding a gun, and she sh- shot her. And they took that that girl out before she was dead, lit a fire on her, and burned her alive. The next one, uh, the second daughter, she locked into a closet that had no ventilation and left her there for three days, starving and dehydrating, uh, and and then took the body, had her sons take the body and just go dump it on the road. Had the other siblings cover the, oh, you're right. That's no lady. That is unbearable. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the right pronunciation. Peter Curtin or Curtin? Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, German. Uh, He started with cruelty to animals he would uh, rape animals and slit their throat and drink their blood. And that is, he developed a thirst for blood and he wanted to figure out what implement would best draw blood from humans. So he tried out various things like a hammer, a dagger, and a pair of scissors. He would stab people, hit them in the head. Many of them were children, but there were males and adult women. Um, because what he wanted was to get the blood spurting so that he could catch it in his mouth because he found that sexually satisfying. Unbelievable. And I'm reading here he was executed by guillotine. That's not something you normally hear about, especially in 1931, executed by guillotine. I hope he was absolutely terrified right up well, until he wasn't. the moment he, uh, that he was. He, he, really. he actually wanted to hear the blood, he hoped he, his head would live long enough where he could hear the blood coming forth from his neck. How do we not know these names? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm really glad I know your name because I'm glad someone is studying them and that you have the stomach for it. Catherine Remsland, thank you. I look forward to our next conversation. I know it's weird to say that, but I really do. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. All right, so coming up, uh, he was a star on Bravo, one of my favorite channels, uh, when reality TV, by the way, was just starting to get super steamy. A celebrity surgeon on a show called Online Dating Rituals of the American Male. Oh, you can see where this is going. And then suddenly that American male and his wife were charged with drugging and sexually assaulting multiple women. That was all five years ago. So... Where did all the charges go, all the sex charges on the eve of trial? 
Are we going to hear a word about swingers and Coke and Molly and all that? Details are next. If I mention Central Florida, a police sting, drug trafficking, and a kingpin, you might think like Scarface or Miami Vice or El Chapo, right? What would not cross your mind, though, is the villages. The villages. Florida's largest retirement community is just outside of Orlando. Um, I would like you to meet Reginald Kinser, 77 years old, and apparently one of the more popular residents in the villages. Big smile. Police say, actually, he is the mastermind of a drug ring at the villages. And they say they busted him for trying to sell male enhancement pills to all of his elderly neighbors and maybe even retirees in other states, too. Even the feds are involved in this one, saying that Mr. Kinser had a distribution plan and almost $2,000 worth of erectile dysfunction meds that uh, didn't have a prescription for. And it turns out we got a couple of other mugshots for uh, Reggie Kinser. He's had several dust-ups with the law a couple of times now, mostly drug charges, failure to appear. But he always seems to have that very same smile, even while being booked, even though he's facing up to like a year in jail for this latest one. But maybe it's because of the kind of drugs involved in the story. I don't know. But there you go. Reggie Kinser. All right. So it is um, uh, about 6 a.m. in Israel right now. And so daylight is about to break. We have a live shot. It is still dark and it's been quiet overnight. Uh, but the bombardment could start again during the daytime. Uh, the Israelis have told Palestinians, get out, get out of Gaza. Don't know how they're going to because it's kind of like a prison. Um, but we know that the siege is on for real. So the lights you see now, uh, eventually, I mean, those are probably generator based with fuel, etc. because the electricity has been cut, the fuel's been cut, the, the water's been cut, everything. When the fuel runs out, it will be black. It will be black because uh, they will have nothing.